Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Growing up in a small town in Maine, you know, we didn't have a lot to choose from. You would go to the supermarket and it was pretty small or you'd go to the movie theater and there were three options and that was it. That's yeah. we had cable. I think we had like 23 channels or something when I was a kid. And now, of course, we live in a world in which not only do we have unlimited options and Netflix and if we want to stream television, but also in the way we live our lives. You can go anywhere you want if you jump on a plane. You can study anything you want on the internet. We're so mobile and we're so um, exposed to so many things that we have become trapped by the amount of variety in our lives. And that's where we end up. Even in the example I give Tinder, you carry around in your pocket a thousand potential matches, more than a thousand actually. And so how do you settle on just one? And that bleeds into every aspect of our lives. And it's a very difficult way to live life. Not only is it bad for you, but it's bad for all the people around you who are just waiting for you to make a decision. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Patrick, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. It's great to be here. Yeah. So we actually have you back here uh, for a second time because um, we had you here when you wrote your previous book, The 10% Entrepreneur, like, which was hands down one of my favorite books I've read uh, over the last 10 years. The, as I was saying to you before we hit record, that concept of ownership resonated with me so much that I've been really, really hammering people on the importance of ownership of your content, uh, your audience. I mean, so much so that I'm like trying to convince my roommate to stop using Facebook to build his audience. You know, I'm saying, look, you know, the moment the landlord decides to change his mind, like AKA the algorithm, you're fucked. Um, so, you know, pardon my French, but uh, given the subject matter of this new book, I thought I would start with a question that I don't believe I've asked you. And that is what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? I love that question. I've never had it. It's such a smart one. Uh, so I think the one I'm going to be, I'm going to admit something that's incredibly nerdy, but you know, we're all friends here. I was the, the drum major of the marching band. <laughs> well, guess what? I was a tuba player. In the no way. Band. Oh man, it's yeah. heavy. That's heavy. I played trombone. So yeah, I, I conducted the marching band and I was, 
I loved it. It was, it was, we were, we were a, you know, small, actually, our little marching band was probably like <laughs> 25 people. And I, I cared about it so much. It was, you know, this, I, I really wanted to be um, the state champion drum major, which I was able to achieve at, uh, at the end of the season, but our little band wasn't, wasn't so good. And people wouldn't show up to, I would literally pick up five people before rehearsals to make sure they showed up because I just <laughs> cared so much. And then actually in the middle of the season, I was actually fired for insubordination by the, by the band director. And I managed to rally the band around me and get reinstated. So, <laughs> so it was a very dramatic experience. And what it, I think it learned was uh, number one leadership, but number two, you know, I got fired because I was insubordinate. So I learned how maybe to express myself in a way that I wouldn't get fired in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I was kicked out of band my senior year in high school as well. Wow, we have so much in common that I didn't even know about. <laughs> like talk about this <laughs> offline. Uh, yeah, so leadership and you know, sort of insubordination. But I, I think the other fat thing that's fascinating to me is that you know, like I, I went from like a four hundred person marching band to a two hundred person marching band. I mean, a twenty five person marching band—that's a whole different social dynamic. Uh, what did you learn from navigating such a small town environment? Because I know that you referenced that in the book, which we will get into. Um, and how did that affect, uh, you know, your social interactions, your ability to build relationships when you went out into the world? Like, what did you learn about that from being in such a small town environment? Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's interesting because I come from this little town of 20,000 people where there wasn't a lot to do. And so marching band was, I had unlimited time to devote to it because that's kind of like, I did that and I did a bunch of other clubs. I was, I was even in high school in everything doing president of the national honor society and the marching band and the jazz band and the this and the that um so i was always very very sort of social and extroverted but i think what what was interesting as i think back to it was that that was unusual and in fact i think it made me a bit of a target because people didn't like that and they were like well he you know why is he doing all these things and why does he want to be the president of that or this and and i think there was a little bit of a, a resentment towards that it, like the classical thing about like the the nerd and the and the and the and the jock and the and the the kind of the tough kid and you know everybody's mean to each other and we didn't call it bullying but that's kind of what it was and so i think what happened was when i went out into the wider world and went to college and found that there were a lot more people that i had a lot more in common with it just made me feel a lot more confident in who i was right because i think in high school i felt like everybody judged me and that they thought i was you know a nerd and 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 I, that, that, that the things i wanted to do were bad and stuff like that and now i realize okay like actually the things that i wanted to do in high school that other people look down on actually are the things that make you more successful when you go out into the wider world yeah well i think it's interesting that you participated in so many things and you know we live in this sort of uh you know i, I don't remember what book it was that i was reading very recently about how parents have overscheduled their children's lives uh, with the sort of activities and stuff to help them get into college, which I think is, is interesting considering we're about to, you know, talk about this whole idea of FOMO. And, you know, I was, I was pleasantly surprised to find that you quite literally coined the word FOMO. I, I didn't have no idea, but, um, <laughs> I mean, it, it seems like that that was there even in high school in some way to participate in all these activities. Uh, I mean, do you think that's what drove some of it? I think it's partially that. I, I, as I mentioned, I grew up in a small town where there wasn't a lot going on and where it was life was quite simple. And, you know, we were very middle class, our whole town, including my family. So it wasn't that I was jetting off to Paris for my holidays and things like that. However, I had a plan. I came into high school and I literally, I remember I would, every year they would put the top 10 students in our high school in the newspaper and they would list all the activities. And I took note of that. I studied it like other people study baseball sats. And so when I entered my, my freshman year of high school, I 
told myself, I'm going to do every club I can to the point where they can't even fit the number of clubs I did into that box in the, in the yearbook under my picture. And that's exactly what I did because I believe that would be my way to get into a good college and to all this other stuff. So, I mean, if you look back at it, it's, I remind myself a lot of the Tracy flick from that, that book in the movie election, <laughs> because yeah. I was so in, intense. I used to actually wear a blazer to high school at a public high school in Maine. There's a reason why people made fun of me, but yeah. I just, I, I had a plan. And so I was very laser focused. And part of that was definitely wanting to do everything. Thing. And I think that has been in my DNA ever since. And, and you know, we'll talk about this in more detail, but, but yeah. I, I'm learning how to manage that and to actually choose things more thoughtfully has been one of the biggest things I've had to focus on as an adult. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, I'd imagine. I mean, when I read the book, I thought to myself, wow, like this is a problem that we're all dealing with. Uh, but before we get there, part of what I want to you know explore with you is this is a pretty drastic transition from your previous book, uh, you know, The 10% Entrepreneur. And we'll link up the other episode for people listening. Uh, because, I mean, that book was all about, you know, investing, ownership, entrepreneurship. Um, and there are elements of that in this, but this is a pretty drastic shift because this feels much more like a social science book than an entrepreneurship book. So what, what prompted your exploration of this subject of all the things that you could do? You're so right. And it, it was not the plan, by the way. So I wrote The 10% Entrepreneur, which is a book about how to be an entrepreneur without quitting your day job. And I did that based on my own experience. And then I published the book and I traveled around the world. It ended up coming out in like 12 languages. And I did book, book tour in more than 20 countries, everywhere from, from Myanmar to Cote d'Ivoire to Brazil to Mexico. So it was a really fascinating experience to travel around and, and talk to people about the 10% an entrepreneur and to be part of what I consider to be a movement um, that I that I believe in. And so I had no intention to write a book about FOMO ever. But what happened was, and this was my one of my big lessons from this experience, was everywhere I went, I would give talks and, and I would talk to pretty big groups of people and different, as I mentioned, all over the place. And people loved the concept and it resonated with them. But they only wanted to take the selfies because I had invented the word FOMO. So I'd always mention in, in the beginning about FOMO and, and I linked FOMO to the idea of entrepreneurship and that we all have entrepreneurship FOMO and that's why 10% entrepreneurship is a great solution to that. And so people would line up and they would say, oh, my friend has FOMO, can you take a picture with me? And I thought well, that's very interesting that I've just talked for an hour about entrepreneurship, but the thing that people connect with emotionally with me is the FOMO. And so as I did sort of realize that, I thought to myself, there may be a book in this. And so I started toying with that idea and working on a book proposal. And then I decided to start a podcast and I had this kind of big decision to make. Is it going to be the 10% entrepreneur podcast or am I going to do something around FOMO? And I decided, listen, there is FOMO so broad in the way the 10% entrepreneur is, is a, it's a bit more of a niche play and, and the people who will read that book, it's a smaller sub subset of, of the population. FOMO is something that we all feel. It's a really widespread and it's very global. Why don't I go with that idea? And I created this podcast called FOMO Sapiens. And then I realized there was an audience for that. And so I thought, you know, maybe I can dig into this. And so I started gathering more information and, and realizing that there was a book that I could write. And so that's, that was the transition, but it was at the end of the day, it came from listening to the audience and learning yeah. what their interest was. And so it was completely surprised. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, it's funny because even even if you talk to to you know somebody like Ryan Holiday, who is like probably the most prolific author that I know, uh, one of the things he said is often, you know, his books are basically you know an expansion on something he wrote in one of his previous books, mm-hmm. uh, and just you know seriously expanded. But the thing that you say when you open the book is that when you treat your life as a Tinder feed, swiping with reckless abandon without ever committing to any of the potential options, you turn everything around you from opportunities to individuals into commodities. You also send a clear and unambiguous message to everyone else. You are the holdout. How did we get here? Oh, boy. Well, I'll tell you, it's 
that is, is, is a creation of our modern lives. So you're describing right there, FOBO or fear of a better option, the idea we don't commit to anything. And there are, of course, elements of this in being human, right? Hum- humankind has always been well aware of wo- that there are other options out there that might be better for you, and maybe you should wait for something to come along. And so, you know, even even our earliest ancestors uh, were indecisive at times, of course, because that's the nature of being a human being. What has changed and what has made this phenomenon something that's widespread and and really damaging is technology. It's the fact that, as I mentioned, you know, growing up in a small town in Maine, you know, we didn't have a lot to choose from. You would go to the supermarket and it was pretty small, or you'd go to um, the movie theater and there were three options and that was it. That's yeah. we had cable. I think we had like, you know, 23 channels or something when I was a kid. And now of course we live in a scenario in a world in which not only do we have unlimited options and Netflix and if we want to stream television, but also in the way we live our lives, you can go anywhere you want for pretty for, for pretty pretty low price if you if you jump on a plane. Um, you can uh, study anything you want on the internet. There are jobs all over the place, and we're so mobile and we're so um, exposed to so many things yeah. that we have become uh, sort of trapped by the amount of variety in our lives, and that's where we we end up. Even in the example I give of Tinder, dating. You yeah. carry around in your pocket a thousand potential matches, more than a thousand actually. And so how do you settle on just one? And that bleeds into every aspect of our lives. And it's a very difficult way to live life. Not only is it bad for you, but it's bad for all the people around you who are just waiting for you to make a decision. So we know a lot of you have been listening to us for years and it means the world to us. What we do here at The Unmistakable Creative wouldn't be possible without the support of our listeners. If the podcast has been valuable to you, one of the best ways you can support us is to subscribe to Unmistakable Creative Prime, which gives you access to transcripts, all of our courses, monthly coaching calls, live chats with our guests, and an incredible community of creatives. And it costs less than you spend on a cup of coffee every month. For the school teachers and people in our education system, Prime is completely free to help you with this transition to teaching online. We've packed it with a ton of value and actionable content, and we hope you'll check it out. Just go to unmistakablecreative.com slash prime to learn more. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash prime. Well, I think even culturally, I mean, dating is such a great example. It's like, this is so deeply embedded in our culture now that I wonder if there's even a way out of it. But the two things you mentioned are the role of perception and inclusion. And you say that, that your impression of something's intrinsic value is based on all kinds of internal and external cues, things like friends, family, and social media influencers, past experiences, and interests or passions. And if you think about Tinder in general, I think that, you know, like, I think it's pretty common practice among single guys. If you match with a really attractive girl, people are like, oh man, check out this girl I matched with. She's super hot, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is the, you know, sort of friends opinions. But um, given that there are all these things biasing our perceptions, you know, these, these things that create cognitive biases, is there a way that we can mitigate them? Most definitely. So that's the thing about this is that part of the solution to this problem is number one, recognizing that it exists in the first place. So the word FOMO, people know what that is. It's in the dictionary and which is insane to me, but you know, that is a, that is a, a, a behavior that we all see and we know how to name. 
FOBO, fear of a better option, which is what we were talking about in terms of this inability to decide. That's something that didn't hasn't really had a name, even though I invented them the same day, the same time. It never really got sort of the currency that FOMO did. And so I think the, the first step is to just recognize that that is a behavior and, and be able to put a name to it. But second of all, is there's really clear strategies around that, because when you think about FOBO, FOBO is, is, a, is a combination of two things. It's a combination of, number one, maximization, thinking that you can always find something better out there. And number two, it's, it's about uh, option value and wanting to keep your options open for as long as possible without making a decision, you know, so you have ultimate flexibility. And so what I, what I advise people to do, and it's, 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 it's a strategy that about around decision making that, that you actually systematically go through your options and then in a very sort of thoughtful way, evaluate them. And then always, uh, when you, when you choose, uh, so you compare them one by one, you choose the better each time mm-hmm. you do a comparison, you throw the other one away forever and you don't go back to it. Because the problem here is that when we do not eliminate options, we avoid the very necessary part of decision-making, which is letting go of what we can't have. And so that's mm-hmm. a really fundamental part of how you get past this indecision. Yeah. Well, I want to come back to all of that and we'll, we'll actually run it through <clears throat> a couple of practical examples because several came to my mind when I was going mm-hmm. through this. But one of the other things you talked about in the, this whole idea of the role of perception and inclusion is what you call the asymmetry of information, uh, You know, this disconnect between what we think you know, or hope that we'll get and what we actually get. Um, what is, you know, I mean, obviously that, that's kind of how you define it. Like how does asymmetry of information play out in our lives? The very simple example, which is, which is, it sounds trivial, but, but you can then expand this into a wider series of, of, uh, of scenarios in your life is you go on a Facebook or, or you go on an Instagram and you see that picture of your friend with his beautiful family and they're at their beautiful, uh, villa on their vacation in Tuscany and the light is perfect. And it just, you're sitting at home in your underwear watching something on television and you think to yourself like, wow, my life is just not stacking up. Now, what you don't see, of course, is the fact that there's a gazillion filters on that picture that everybody got in a fight two seconds after that, you know, none of that is real, that it's all produced. But the fact that you don't know is a result of an asymmetry of information. If you had perfect information about all of the things that provoke feelings of FOMO, you would not have FOMO because you'd know, okay, either I should do that or I shouldn't, or either, you know, this is worth my thinking about or it's not. And so the fact that we, in our minds are creating all these scenarios and whether it's the job that you see, you, you see the listing for, or it's that life that you didn't leave, or it's the person you dated who's married to somebody else. When we yearn for the things that we don't have, but we are the ones who are imbuing them with the perfection, um, when that in real life, they may not ever live up to it. We are feeling the information asymmetry that exists with lots of things that aren't productive for us. And so that is a big, a big factor here as well is really thinking carefully, is this even real? And I think a lot mm-hmm. of times we don't do that because we're so used to seeing idealized images everywhere um, that we're, that we're not as critical as we need to be. Well, it's funny because you literally mentioned that you said people have become experts at shaping their digital personas for maximum likes, and they'll go out of their way to cultivate the perfect image. And it made me think of something that I told Danielle Laporte when I was interviewing her for uh, Creative Lives Podcasting. I said basically what this does is cause us to confuse attention with affection. Um, and you know, I 
I wonder if, if you know, like obviously billions of people use these products around the world. We know that their impact has had a lot of negative consequences. And now we're in a situation where they're literally in a lot of ways our only access to other people. Uh, so how do you navigate this like asymmetry of information? Uh, and then, you know, these three forces that you talk about, relentless access to information, extreme in- interconnectivity and reference anxiety in the midst of something like what we're dealing with now, where technology is really our primary way to actually have some semblance of connection with other humans. I mean, it's, this is where where it gets really really tricky, right? Because you're so yeah. right. <laughs> you can't leave your apartment if you're in in a self quarantine, for example. And so you turn immediately to social media. And in fact, if you look at the numbers uh, around social media use right now, uh, it's way up, way way up. You're seeing massive massive use because all the people who said no screens, no screens, all of a sudden, if you only have a screen to connect with people, you are uh, you are you got to sort of change your uh, your priorities. And so. Yeah. Number one, I think there is the necessity to to limit your use of these things, and 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 basically, what I have done personally is I just I unfollow a lot of people if I don't feel good about what I see, if it provokes in me a bad feeling, even if the other person didn't mean for it to do that, I simply unfollow those people. Number two is um, I spend a lot of time thinking about how can I use my time in ways that is actually counteracting that? And so one, one great example is uh, mindfulness. And you know, mindfulness is this buzzword that everybody uses. And, and I think it's oftentimes uh, the perception of what that means is, is really, um, it's really sort of been shaped and altered. And, and we, a lot of people don't sort of have a clear view of what that means. It sounds very freaky deaky or, or something that that's for hippies and, and, and folks like that. But for me, what that means is basically taking time each day to spend time away from the screens. I meditate, other people could take a walk, but just spending time away from the fictional world that exists in the apps and the screens and living in the real world where everything is physical and you can actually observe things and see what their true nature is. It's very helpful because what happens when you, when you look at social media and you, you, you idealize or project things upon these images is that you are not living in the real world. You are in fact creating a bunch of fictional things that are outside of the real world. And you need to pull yourself back to reality because that difference between what's real and what's in your mind, that's where the pathology begins. Uh, That's where you're causing damage to yourself. And so if you can spend time and whether it's talking to people in real life and, you know, on on a zoom call or on the phone, or interacting with people or just being in nature where things are what they what they seem to be uh, that helps you to then mitigate all of this fantasy world that you're creating in your head when you're looking at the apps yeah well it's you know it reminds me of, of uh the story that i shared on another podcast where i was interviewed um, we had a guest named alex benign here i think probably last year or the year before wrote this amazing book called the third door um, ended up interviewing everybody from Jessica Alba to Bill Gates, and the book became you know a bestseller, sold tens of thousands of copies. I mean, if you looked at his Facebook feed, it was pretty much that. But one of the things that he talked about with me was the fact that his dad had also died that year um, that the book came out. And what what struck me about that is I think if you were to solely look at the feed, you would think, oh, Alex must have this amazing life. But I'm willing to bet money, and I think I would feel the same way that he wouldn't trade one of those extra book sales if it meant, you know, he got more time with his dad. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I went to a book party that he did in New York. And I remember at the time, you know, he's so confident 
and his uh, his stories are so insane that I felt sort of like, man, this guy, like, wow, what, what am I doing wrong? Like, he's got yeah. this crazy life, and like, what am I? And and I didn't know the, the the fact about his dad, but it's it's insane how yes, we see people like an Alex who is a tremendous guy, by the way, and his his book's great, I'm sure, and and his stories are amazing. But when you peel back the cover, we're all multidimensional, and you know we feel pain, and even if you're out there doing your business and, and pushing forward, um, we have this tendency to want to put our best foot forward online. Right. And that is, that's, that's, you know, very human. Do you think that we'll come out of this better off, uh, than we were before? This is something I was talking to somebody about the other day. Uh, you know, it's a conversation that's called a lot of people recently is, I mean, you and I are probably close in age just based on, on some of the things you've told me. But, you know, I said, like, I remember when I was in high school, the future of the telephone was when you could see the other person's face on the other end of the phone. It was just mm-hmm. this idea that, like, that was some back to the future stuff. And that capability has been around for more than 10 years, and we almost never use it. Um, but we have recently. And what's interesting is even in, in my neighborhood, like, there are people sitting out in their driveway yesterday. And and we're thinking to myself, wow, like one of our neighbors came and brought us a bottle of wine to welcome us to the neighborhood. And like part of me wonders if any of this would have actually happened if we weren't in the situation we were in. Like I suddenly realized it's like, wow, people have taken this ability to, to connect for granted. Um, but I think that I'm seeing some very beautiful things come out of this as well uh, in terms of how we're using technology. And I wonder, based on having written this book, what you think about that. So here's how I think about it, because I've spent a lot, a lot of time, as you can imagine, I'm in quarantine. I have plenty of time to think about, uh, not quarantine, but self-isolation, a lot of time to think about how this really plays out in the age of COVID. And I think there, there is an initial true benefit, which is that when we step back, we, in a sense, this whole sort of phenomenon can, in, in a sense, be a cure for some of our FOMO, as it were, because we're forced to step back. You simply can't do the thing. You can't go on the vacation to Hawaii that your friend went on because nobody's flying there right now, right? So you are forced to reckon with yourself. And I think there is a beauty to that because when we slow down, we do the things that maybe we wished in our heart of hearts we, we, we wanted to do, but we didn't do because we were so busy running around doing all kinds of other things. So whether it's reading that book or cross-stitching, somebody told me they're doing cross-stitching, all these things that we never had time for before that are things that we love in our heart of hearts. So I do think there's a beauty to that that we should appreciate. I also feel though, after a month or two of this and when I'm coming into you know the end of the first month, there is a deep sense of mourning for the life the simple things of the life that we once led where we could connect with people in different ways and we could go to restaurants. I mean, crazy things that are, <laughs> that are, that are not possible right now. And I think that, um, that is a, that's a big negative because, uh, I think right now, uh, at least in the earlier stages of, of this new transition to what we're going to, um, we've been focused simply on a sort of siege mentality and like just getting through, but then there's going to be a recognition that some things will not come back or some things will change in ways that we don't like. And I think there'll be a sense of mourning there. And I also think uh, one thing that, that maybe people don't know is that I came up with the idea of FOMO really in the aftermath. And as a result of 
having lived in New York City during 9-11. And I, I was there living in lower Manhattan and I, it was profoundly affected. It was a, it's, it feels very similar actually to what's going on right now. And it, it just changed me because after that, I thought life is very short. You must live every moment. You must take every opportunity and do everything you can. And I do think that we will see some of that as well, that people are going to, their reaction is going to be like, we have one life to live. Let's live it to the fullest. And I actually don't think that's a bad thing at all, even though it may be a massive time of FOMO, because when you have FOMO, that also means that there is something to miss out on. And to tell you the truth right now, there, I, I, I long for uh, things to miss out on because right now it feels like there is not that much to miss out on. Yeah. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Well, there's one other component that uh, I figured you of all people probably would be somebody very interesting to talk to this about. You know, you talk about the billion dollar business of FOMO and you say that when it's applied to commerce, it's used to achieve a singular goal to entice you to do something you wouldn't do or delay without external stimuli. And then you talk about the role of perception and aspirational FOMO and inclusion and herd FOMO. Given what is going on in the economy, where is the sort of ethical line about all of this? Because, I mean, you know, like you said, it's a billion dollar business. I mean, internet marketers make fortunes off of this. I know this because I get those emails. Yeah, I get those emails too. The amount of emails that I get telling me to, trying to sell me masks, for example, um, from these, I mean, I have no idea who these people are. They seem completely unreputable, but, but the amount of, uh, let's not even talk about reputable people. Let's just talk about these, these sort of fly by night people who are trying to, uh, make money off of a crisis and make money off of our true fear that's completely outrageous and, and, and unethical. And I think there are, there's room for people in the system who are creating value by brokering and providing necessary services. But beyond that, anybody who's trying to capitalize on your fear to make money off of you, uh, yeah, that is, first of all, it's not sustainable because, you know, we, right. you can't live in fear forever. And number two, it's just, uh, it's not a very good thing. And so I think there, the, the traditional FOMO marketing is sort of like, don't miss out on your chance to get the new Apple iPhone, wait in line and buy it. That kind of stuff now seems pretty, pretty mild compared to you see people that, that literally you're, you are using their fear that they could become sick to get them yeah. to do things. On the other side, I would say that there is an element to um, how, how people are being instructed by by government to behave, for example, getting people to self-isolate, you've got to really frighten them and give them a fear that if they don't stay home and they leave their home, that they will they potentially put themselves in danger. And so there is there is also a powerful positive use of this in terms of crowd control. Um, but it is incredible to me when you what I, I mean I did it too. I bought all this toilet paper that I I don't think I, I needed to do that, and and it was just because I saw images online of people in other countries buying tons of toilet paper. And so it's crazy how even <laughs> I'm supposed to know better, I totally fell for the trap. Yeah. Well, I wonder, you know, somebody who has invested in companies and seen people accumulate significant amounts of wealth, one of the things I kind of wonder when we get to the point where, you know, you have to do a $2 trillion stimulus. And I jokingly said, I was like, my second grade math seems better than Steve Mnuchin's treasury math. But then again, I'm not running the treasury department. Uh, and you know, I, I'm a bullshit economist with a 2.97 GPA in economics from Berkeley. But the question I guess I have for you is: Do you think that we've maximized self-interest to the point of diminishing returns, and like we'll come out of this with a very different consciousness about all of this? I do. And I, I was on a call the other day, which was super interesting. With uh, I'm on a board of a company that has a bunch of prominent people and like former world leaders and things like that. And there was a gentleman on the call who had been a cabinet member in the United States um, uh, cabinet. And he said that the the era of Reaganism and Thatcher, Thatcherite thinking is over. And in other words, that sort of capitalism as the only solution and let the free market reign kind of thinking right now I think people are going to question it. It's not just going to be the people who voted for Bernie Sanders. It's going to be a large swath of society because number one, we see that government, um, you know, <laughs> that the government that we have today uh, has been cut to the point, at least in certain sections, that they can't even provide simple things that we need. And so there has been a this quote unquote the the free market will will allocate things efficiently it hasn't worked. 
uh, at all. And number two, I think that there's going to be so much corruption mm-hmm. in, in, in how this whole stimulus is, is late and handed out to the private sector. I mean, the amount of lobbying that's gone on in Washington yeah. is crazy. And so you can just look it up, Google it, because it's, it's out there. And I think that as a result, people are going to say, we need government uh, to be more responsive and we need a, a government that can provide services to us. And listen, I, I, I don't sort of have a dog in this race yet because frankly, right. I, I, I tend to come from more of a private sector thinking, but what has been clear here is that the system as it exists today is very, very deficient. Yeah. Well, and that, that was the, that was why I figured if you of all people as an investor would have a perspective of this. So let, let's actually go into this entire framework for making decisions. Cause it, you know, it was one of the more complex decision-making frameworks I'd seen. And then I thought, okay, let's run this through a real example because you talk about stakes, you know, high stakes, low stakes, and no stakes decisions. And then you basically give us a framework for eliminating information asymmetry. So let's take a stupidly simple example and run it through this framework. Um, and then let's do a high stakes decision as well. So I'll give you an example. I just moved into a new apartment. I needed some sh- like floating shelves for hanging them on my desk because all my audio equipment is cluttering my desk. And I realized after reading your book, I was like, wow, this was a copious waste of time looking at all these fucking options. I was like, okay, that's the thing I'm going to ask Patrick about because I know I'm not alone. People do this all the time. They go to Amazon and for like a $15 purchase, they spend hours like comparing various options. So how can we take this whole framework um, in which you talk about keeping an open mind, knowing what matters, relying on facts, and then formulating questions, you know, criteria data. I mean, you know the framework, so I'll have you walk us through it. Sure. Just, let's use an Amazon purchase as the example. Yeah, this is a great, and it, it's so funny because I, I actually have met, um, there's a company that I, that I heard about that actually reached out to me because their job is to help you make better decisions basically by helping you answer some questions. It's called Zuvu, Z-O-O-V-U. So they, they actually work with Amazon and, and they ask you some questions and then they limit your options to like one, uh, which is kind of cool. <laughs> oh, that's so, cool. So I don't think they have it for floating shelves, but they have it for things like television and, yeah. and, um, and so that's one thing to think about, but, but let me, let me help you out. So, so there are three types of decisions that we make in life, what I call no stakes, low stakes, and high stakes. So high stakes are things that will have an impact in your life in a year. Okay. They're things that, you know, you really want to think through carefully. Low stakes are things that you probably won't remember making the decision in about a month. Okay. So mm-hmm. it's like, which printer should I buy? Which floating shelves should I buy? That's kind of, I'd say yours isn't kind of a low stakes. And right. then the third is the no stakes. And that's literally something you won't remember in a couple of days. And that is something like, you know, what should I have for lunch? Mm-hmm. But what's crazy is that we can spend crazy amounts of time on low stakes and no stakes decisions. I mean, I, the reason <laughs> why I came up with this framework actually is, is because when I was in college, I would spend crazy amounts of time asking myself things like, you know, should I go to the library at two or at four? I mean, I don't, it didn't really matter, but I would, I would just spin my wheels on that. And so basically what I tell you to do in the book and what I do, this is my own cooking that I eat is when it comes to no stakes decisions, should I go for a run today? I simply, if I, if if I'm indifferent, you know, because the reality is most of these small decisions we make Inflect, you know, right away. It's reflexively. We don't have to think much about it. But when you're stuck on something that trivial, uh, I outsource it to my watch. So what I actually do is I say it's a yes or no decision. I look um, down at my watch. If the if the second hand is on the left side, that's yes. If it's on the right side, it's no. Decision is made, and I do that all the time. Uh, red, white, 
or red wine or, or white wine, chicken or fish, all those sorts of things. The smaller decision, which is what you're talking about here, is where you're trying to buy a certain item on, say, Amazon, like these floating shelves. And maybe you've cut a couple of different options, but you're stuck, okay? You just, for some reason, you cannot decide. Well, you're not going to, you could ask your watch, and that's certainly one way to do it. But what I would recommend here is you simply uh, engage with somebody else. So what I'd like to do is ask somebody to make the decision for me. So like, if you want to, you can email me the options you're choosing from, and I'll choose for you. And by the way, <laughs> you are indifferent at this point. So if I choose one set and then you hate them, then you know that also tells you something. But it should be basically at the point where you can't decide because they all look the same to you. Right. So let's let's look at that same thing uh, in terms of another example. I think everybody deals with. I think I spend more time looking for things to watch on Netflix than I actually do watching things on Netflix until I get to the point where I was like, you know what, I'm just going to go back and watch something I've already seen. Oh yeah. It's the same thing. I, I agree. Netflix is, is, is particularly difficult. And listen, I mean, I've been spending a lot of time watching Netflix and I struggle. So there, there you can choose. I, I Number one is I actually, I, I use the low stakes decision here, which is I actually just ask somebody what else to watch. I have a friend and I say, what should I watch tonight? And she tells me. But if you wanted to do the no stakes, what you could do is uh, maybe if you don't want to do ask the watch, uh, you, could, you, could, you could take your watch and instead of having it in two quadrants, divide it into four, find four potential shows you watch, assign each of them a quadrant, look at your watch and start the show. Okay, great. I love that. Well, let's talk about high stakes decisions. I mean, high stakes decisions to me are, are things that you're going to do with your business, uh, you know, potentially who you're going to marry. So <clears throat> let's take the business example. I mean, every one of us right now feels as though we're making very high stakes decisions with our business. So for example, you know, where we're going to allocate resources, you know, something like, okay, where could I potentially spend, you know, cut spending or something like that. Can you walk us through, you know, sort of the framework that you use as an investor? You know, because you talk about questions, criteria, data, um, writing it down in preliminary judgments. Yeah. So, so there are two different scenarios. One's for FOMO. Because remember, FOMO is about like, I want to do everything all the time and I have to like, focus on one thing. And the other is FOBO, which is sort of this idea that I have options, a bunch of options that I could potentially choose, but I'm unwilling to choose one because I'm hoping something better will come along and I want to maximize my outcome. So for the, the options that we have today around a business, for example, I think it's really, that would fall much more into the FOMO space. Or, so excuse me, the FOBO space, which is kind of analysis paralysis. It's like, okay, I need to make a decision now um, I've got three employees and I have to decide which of them I'm going to lay off. Right. And so listen, it's not a pleasant decision, but you have options in front of you. You just can't decide. And so there's two elements to that. Uh, what's happening when you're stuck with this decision is number one, um, you're trying to find the absolutely perfect outcome. And because we can never know what the perfect outcome is because of information asymmetry, uh, it can be tempting to sort of keep waiting and hoping, ah, things will get better, you know, maybe I won't have to do this, and so I should wait, 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 wait. Reality is, of course, we know that you have to be decisive right now, especially in a time of crisis. Second thing is that by, you're waiting as long as possible because we're hoping that things will, will get better. And so that's the issue, right? That's where you're getting stuck. Now, the reality is, as and I've done a bunch of research on this. So as I wrote, wrote the book, you know, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but I might as well be by now because I've read everything out there uh, on, on these topics. Uh, what I learned in, in reading sort of the, the newest research is that the maximization, wanting to have the best outcome in and of itself isn't actually the problem. The problem is the way we make decisions. Because if you keep going back to the same set of decisions without discarding any, that's where you get stuck. That's where you get stuck in the feedback loop. That's where the pathology is. And so what you need to do 
is find a way to eliminate options to get down to just one. And so what you need to do in this situation is number one, you need to do your homework. You need to remove as much of the asymmetry of information as possible. So you're going to go through, say you have these three these three employees and you're trying to decide which one you're going to lay off, you want to understand, okay, what is the, each person does? You know, how have they been performing over the years? What is their capacity to move forward? All these, you know, really having the objective assessment of these people and what would happen if you were to lay somebody off and how it would affect your business. And then hopefully that will give you, and it should do, it should give you a basic ability to start figuring out, okay, what is the, 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 what is the, the sort of the, the appropriate answer? And if you, you haven't gotten to the point and you're still stuck, then what you want to do is literally take, okay, uh, this is the person that I think uh, I should keep. Compare that to another person you think you should keep. You choose the better of the two as the one you should keep, right? Um, and then the other one is the person that you would get rid of. And so the idea is you're always choosing the better, and then letting go of the worst, and in doing so, um, you're able to you, you're you're feeling like you're getting the better the better outcome for yourself. And when you let go of the worst, they are permanently eliminated. And so that that's the big concept here is that you must to make a decision, you must always permanently get rid of the thing that you cannot have. And so it's a bit of a weird way to think about it because here we're trying to decide who to let go of. So it's kind of right upside down um, and a bit of a trickier example, but but really at the end of the day, the fundamental shift you're making in your decision making is that you are not holding on to things you can't have. Well, let me give you an, another example. This is from uh, my sort of pre-applying to business school phase where I was, you know, fired from one last job. And so this, is a, this actually, it, you know, speaks to the, the value of having options um, because I'd never been in a situation up until that point in my life where I had two job offers at the same time. And one of them was to go work for this startup in Mountain View where I absolutely loved the team. I loved the boss, but I also knew I was applying to business school. I was like, I'm going to leave. I was like, I don't feel right screwing these guys over. I had another offer, offer in San Francisco where I was like, I don't care about screwing these guys over. So mm -hmm. I'm willing to take this offer and screw these guys over in June because I don't really like these guys. And what was interesting is the startup in Mountain View that wanted me to drive every day kept upping the offer. They would just call back the next day and the recruiter would say, have you thought about it? I was like, yeah, I don't know. I'm like, you know, an hour drive. I was like, I've done this commute. It's miserable. The next day she'd call and offer another 10K. So I actually chose $15,000 less for a worse boss um, who almost ended up firing me too. And so, I, you know, like, how do you, how do you draw this line between having options? Because I think that for example, even you know, when it comes to dating or even something as ridiculous as choosing book covers, I would make my publisher give me multiple options because I knew that if you have options, you have discernment. And as a result of discernment, you have better judgment. So let's say dating I go back to, right, is that if you're dating one person and they treat you like shit, you don't recognize that, wait a minute, somebody else could treat you better. Um, I, and I'm telling you all this through personal experience. Like it's the same situation I've seen, you know, where I was like, wow, I would not have recognized the other person's like really awful qualities had it not been for the other person, you know, the better person. So where, where's the line here? Like, how do you do this without losing your mind? Yeah, it's true. Well, there's a, there's a, there's a belief out there in our culture that having more options means that we'll make better decisions, which is absolutely not true. And in fact, the data shows that in fact, the more options we have, if we're not decisive people, if you're really decisive and you have more options, you can just make a decision quickly, then that can be good. But generally what happens is the more options you have, the harder it is for you to actually make a decision. And actually you're less happy with the ultimate outcome because of this regret that I was talking about. You feel a sense of regret at what you 
you passed up. And so therefore, people, it's incredible. The studies have shown that people who have more options, even though they could actually have chosen an objectively better outcome, enjoy it less because of the regret they feel, right? And so that's just kind of a great backdrop to understand how we make decisions. Now, what I would recommend and what I think in your decision, it sounds like you made one that you, you felt good about, but injecting structure into how you think about these things is so critical. And so, you know, I just told you this sort of basic strategy for making decisions, but what I add to that actually is I, I write everything down. I create, I think like a, a venture capitalist or like an investor, and I literally write down my rationale because if you can't put your rationale on paper, it really exposes how flawed your thinking is. And so putting something down on paper forces you to reckon with it, to make it real. And it really allows you to make sure that your, your, your rationale is strong. And the second thing that I do is I will then show that uh, rationale and actually argue that case to a limited number of people. Again, you don't want to talk to 50 people because then you have, you're actually <laughs> like, creating way too complicated a process and that yeah. you're working against yourself, but showing it to a limited number of people and getting their feedback makes everything stronger. You expose your weaknesses and, mm -hmm. and it makes it a lot easier to come to the point where the difference between options that maybe before seemed pretty similar actually becomes quite clear. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up a limited number of people because I know that, you know, I and probably plenty of other people have had this tendency to be like, all right, let me just solicit, you know, the internet for, mm -hmm. you know, tons of unsolicited opinions on something in my life that will have no impact on theirs. Yeah. Quora or anything like that. Great for <laughs> uncovering information, right? Yeah. So getting facts and facts are important in terms of building your case. But the minute that like the minute I love the people who put on Facebook and I do this too, I'm going to this city, where should I eat? And then you get 50 different comments. I never even read them because it's mm -hmm. too intimidating. So you're much yeah. better ask three people. Yeah, well, it's funny because I mean, I've gotten even unsolicited dating advice from friends and I've never said this to this friend, you know, who's like, Hey, I'm going to think about being a dating coach. And I, in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, but you've never had a successful relationship. That would be like hiring a broke person to be my financial advisor. So no, um, thanks. I'll pass. <laughs> That's actually pretty amazing. You know, there's, um, it's, it's those who, who, who can't do shouldn't teach, I think is a great, it's a great way to think about that. <laughs> Wow. Uh, well, so now, I mean, have you had this framework blow up in your face ever as an investor? Because I know that not, I mean, part of investing is, is risk. Oh yeah. And, and listen, just because you've made a decision and you've used a strategy doesn't mean you're always going to be right. Uh, life is, is going to give us unexpected twists and turns. And, and certainly with, with, with venture capital, um, people make mistakes all the time. And so what is important to do, and as I mentioned, I, I encourage people to write this down, is that you can go back and compare what actually happened with what you thought would happen and learn and improve your process and make better decisions going forward. And that's what VC firms do. Is you think about a VC fund, they make an investment. And then every year they do what's called portfolio review, which is they look at what happened and compare it to their original assumptions and say, where can we learn from this? And so I think over time, as we gain life experience and knowledge, and as we practice, we will obviously get better. But that doesn't mean just because we try to uncover information asymmetry, just because we've done the process appropriately, that doesn't mean that we're going to get it right at all. And that's part of the human experience. But the important thing is when you make a decision, you get a chance to actually do something uh, rather than staying at home indecisive. And, and that's where you don't want to be. Yeah. Wow. So I have one final question for you, which I know you've heard me ask before, um, and it's how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? So I went through this 
this process myself of figuring out something that was unmistakable for me that only I could do. And I, in my life, I've seen friends build companies and, and businesses that are really, really cool. I have contemporaries that I knew from New York, like the the guy who founded Bonobos or another friend of mine started um, the Female Founders Fund. And when I saw these things, I thought, wow, only they could do this. It's so tied to their essence and who they are. And I'll never have that. And then over time, having now written a couple books and and with FOMO and stuff like that. Like those are very much things that only I could have done. I think, you know, they're very tied into who I am as a human being and, and I imbue them with who I am and my personality. And so they're very tied to, to me. And so I've gotten a really good sense of what it means to be unmistakable. And I would say if I were to sort of step back and say, well, what is it? I think it's really, it, it's, it's knowing really well where, where your personal story aligns with something that you do well, and then finding a way to share it with people that in a way that's really genuine. And so whether that is writing a piece of music and being an artist, or it's starting a company that solves a problem that you feel passionate about, or it's the restaurant where you're at the front desk every night and people come in and you know your clients, whatever that is to you. I mean, my barista at my local coffee shop, Juno, who's amazing, he knows every client. He knows what their coffee order is every day when they walk in and, and he knows about their lives. And like, that's incredible to me, unmistakable. So I think it is that it's injecting the humanity into whatever you're creating and whatever you're putting out into the world. Wow. Amazing. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, the book and everything else that you're up to? Okay, so the best place to go is patrickmcginnis.com. There you can find uh, information about my new book, Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice. You can also check out my podcast, FOMO Sapiens. And you can find me on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, Instagram, Patrick J. McGinnis. And on Facebook, it's Patrick McGinnis. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hey, did you know that every Sunday our community manager, Milena, sends out 10 key takeaways from episodes just like this one? All you have to do to receive it is sign up for our newsletter. Just visit unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter and you'll get them delivered right to your inbox. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Boll & Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Boll & Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BollAndBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that, and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.